Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, I once again want to thank everybody who's donated so far. Uh, you guys helped me out a great deal. I was able to pay my cable bill, and as a result, be able to continue to do this show. Um, moving forward, uh, I'm going to be hopefully getting employed here pretty soon, but I still plan on continuing to do radio shows. So thank all of you who have been supporting V Radio. It wouldn't be the first time that my listeners have saved my bacon, so to speak, and I really appreciate it. Um, to those of you who donated, uh, please don't forget uh, the perk that if you donate at least $20, I'll, get, I'll let you pick a show topic, um, and some of you did. So just get back to me about it, because also I'm, I've kind of had a little bit of writer's block. I'm trying to figure out what I wanted to do shows about anyway. So if you have any ideas, don't hesitate to let me know. So that said, um, I want to welcome my guest to the show, uh, Perry Gruber, is it? Yes. Um, well, welcome, Perry. Um, I had actually, it was one of my longtime listeners, Joe Park, who had been asking me to get a show with you for a long time. Um, and I had been kind of on hiatus at the time. Um, but now that I'm back, I wanted to try to make an opportunity for, you know, for this show to happen. So, um, guess, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience and discuss what got you started in activism. Okay. Um, I prefer to term social engineering, um, but activism is fine too. Um, my, obviously, my name is Perry Gruber. I'm the founder of an organization called Copiosis. Uh, some people think that term is, sounds like a disease, but what it actually is is a Latin term that means wealthy, well-endowed, fully endowed, or rich. And so the, the organization um, is designed to promote and create a reality based on our innovation, also called copiosis, which I consider to be the bridge to the resource-based economy, uh, the actual transition mechanism. And so that's what I'm doing. Okay, excellent. Well, I guess then the question really to kind of give the listeners an idea of like what inspired you um can you think of a a moment or whatever that brought you to the conclusion to be thinking outside the box in this way well i i that's a really good question i've i've actually been um of this mindset for quite some time never really feeling comfortable with the status quo um knowing that something could always be improved upon it in some way but i never really knew what that could be this is when i was a kid um, and over many years of my life and three major careers, I had the opportunity to get um, some really deep back- background into how the current system operates. But it wasn't until 2000, uh, 2005 or so that I had a chance encounter with a guy online who had introduced me to some concepts about the current system that really were, um, it's kind of like who's in Grant's tomb, that joke that we often hear that's really hard to answer until you hear the answer, then you're like, oh, no, duh. (laughs) It was kind of like that. The the explanations he gave me were so spot on and logical and yet so hidden from consciousness that when he shared these points with me, it, it was like a light bulb went off. And from there, I realized that something had to be done. And and that conversation led to more discoveries of my own, um, reading certain books and encountering certain individuals. And as a result of those readings and, and encounters, 
um, and then some personal spiritual development on my own, um, I came to uh, realizing that I could actually take action in a way that has had not been up to that point to, to make a shift in humanity's future that could make a, a huge difference for humanity. And so when I, when I had that realization, I just, I got goose pimples and I felt that this was my life mission. It was like I had, it, it took, let's see, I'm 51 now. So it took like, this is almost embarrassing. It took, it, it took up until I was like 46 before I ran into my life mission. And once that happened, there really was no going back. I had to do this thing. And so that's what got me started. Yeah, I can, um, I basically was always kind of out of the box myself, but uh, I'd say it was probably like the 2008 uh, presidential elections and um, just different like out-of-the-box politicians that were running at that time that kind of got me to to take a look. Uh, Guys like Ron Paul, Dennis Kucinich, Mike Gravel, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because that was, at least in my opinion, the first time I'd ever heard anybody, you know, really being anti-establishment. And Mm -hmm. um, that led to me watching like the Zeitgeist films and um, you know, led me to investigating the Venus Project and things like that. So mm-hmm. I definitely understand where you're coming from there. Now, I guess, uh, you know, as it is also the title of the show, <laughs> um, how do you pronounce it and what is it? How do I pronounce what, my organization? Yes. Oh, um, it's Copiosis, and um, it's C-O-P-I-O-S-I-S. And... Um, what is it? You're talking about innovation, or what does the word stand for? Well, basically, yeah. What is what is the innovation, and what does the word stand for? Okay. Like, why well, did you pick that word, and what does it? Yeah. Mean? Well, um, so the last six years of my my professional career, I've been an entrepreneur, and so one of the ways that when we create businesses, one of the things that we do is we try and find a catchy name that that is appropriate to the innovation or the the business that I'm starting, and so I use. Google Translate to do that and typically rely on Latin because Latin tends to have some pretty cool words that lend themselves to the names of businesses. And so um, I believe what I what I was doing in Google Translate was I typed in um, the word cornucopia and wealth and prosperity and um, Google Translate recommended this word copiosis. So that's how I came across the word. Um, The innovation itself is a much more complicated story. Essentially, it's a um, it's a globally designed uh, system of operating uh, human societies wherein uh, everyone's basic necessities are provided at no cost to them. So that's food, clothing, shelter, education, uh, healthcare. Is it food, clothing, shelter, education? Yeah, food, clothing, shelter, education, and healthcare are all provided to everyone at no cost. And then everything else that doesn't fit into those those categories are either luxuries or capital goods. And capital goods are provided to everyone who is a producer uh, at no cost to them. And then luxuries, in order to access those, people must do things for other people or the environment that creates what we call net benefit. Uh, and if they if they create that net benefit, society rewards those people with this credit that we call net benefit reward. Um, and they can they use the net benefit reward to meet the gateway that it, that producers assign to their luxury goods that they're offering um, consumers, 
Uh, and if you're able to meet the gateway, then you can, and, and the producer wants to provide you with that product or service, they will they will provide it to you. And so, um, the system is, is that's just an overview of how the system works. But it has many other sophisticated moving parts that, when when you consider them as a whole, it's a very effective solution to um, moving human society on a global scale from the current capitalist-dominated paradigm. Uh, that also has other aspects, uh, other political systems operating subordinate to capitalism. From moving from that that uh, that conglomeration of political systems onto this this newer system, which paves the way for a future uh, that is ultimately a sharing economy, um, very similar to the RBE, um, but with some distinctions, I think. So that's essentially what the innovation is. What would the distinctions be? The the main distinctions are <clears throat> that the products and well, all assets are not commonly owned. They're actually privately owned. But now a lot of people get their hackles up when they hear that because they associate privately owned with what we know privately owned to be today in the debt-based economic system. In in this future that I'm talking about, privately owned is more. Uh, Akin to stewardship of of physical assets, um, so particularly capital goods. So the the the, the factors of production, land, labor, and capital, the results of those production, which are the products and services, um, are all owned by individuals who are owning those goods and services in stewardship of those who would consume or benefit from those goods and services. So. Ownership does not mean um, you have ownership of this land, and so you can uh, uh, prevent anyone from coming onto the, that land, although that is possible. Um, what it actually means is you manage that land as the steward of that land to the greatest benefit of humanity possible. And by doing that, society will reward you with the net benefit reward that then you can use to access luxuries. You can, if you choose, if you own a piece of land, refuse to allow anyone to have access to it. But in doing so, you do not, because you're not benefiting humanity, or um, because you're not benefiting humanity by restricting access, you receive no net benefit reward. And so, the production of that land for your own personal interest is pretty negative. So that's one distinction. The other distinction is that um, there's no central planning. Um, authority that makes decisions on behalf of society in in this future that copiosis ultimately leads to um, society operates according to this system called stage merge in which every individual actor is free to make the decisions he or she wants as a producer and the collective decision making that occurs um, as a kind of like a net as a cloud so to speak produces the best results for society as a whole because everyone is making decisions based on producing net benefit, which by definition is um, the difference between an act's harm on society and the planet subtracted from and that same act's benefit to society and the planet. Presumably, the difference between those two is a net benefit. Okay. Um, I guess then the, the questions that typically come up uh, so I guess you suggest that incentive is provided 
not through uh, the really, I mean, uh, what amounts to extortion that our current society has in that you either do this or you don't survive. Yeah. Incentive is provided instead in the from the perspective of, well, if you want really fancy stuff, then you got to do more than just breathe. That's part, that, that's one incentive. So there's, there's, when we talk about incentives, we have to look at motivations. And I, in my experience, there are a lot of people um, that I know who are motivated, or a better word, is inspired to do things because they, they're just moved to do that thing as an expression of who they are. In other words, they're intrinsically motivated to do that thing. They're intrinsically inspired to do that thing. And oftentimes, the things that people who are intrinsically motivated to do often benefit people or the planet. Um, There are other people, and I would argue a much larger percentage of the population due to conditioning, who are extrinsically motivated. So they need some sort of external reward or external punishment to motivate them to do the things that we would, as a society, prefer them to do and as a society not prefer them to do so right. so so by offering those people the net benefit reward system those people are motivated through the accumulation of that benefit reward which allows, which enables them to access luxuries to do the things that benefit society and the planet now everyone in in the future that i'm talking about is 100% free to do whatever they want so if you are <clears throat> conditioned to be a psychopath or just a bad actor, you can conduct those bad acts to some limited degree, but you won't receive it because you're not benefiting people on the planet. You're not going to receive any net benefit reward. And more than likely, someone, because everyone is free on the planet to do whatever they want, someone is probably going to engage you as a bad actor to, in an attempt to help you soothe the pain that you're acting from. Um, and the reason why they would do that is because, number one, they're passionate. Number two, they... Um, are either intrinsically motivated through that passion or they're extrinsically motivated by the positive, the potential of receiving that benefit reward to benefit you. And so they would, they would naturally offer uh, assistance to you to soothe that pain that you're operating from. Okay. Um, well, I guess then uh, when you say also that there's no central planning um, and, you know, as far as the difference, I guess then the question then becomes, who determines like what task is worth what amount of net benefit reward? Correct. That's a good question. So in, in this future, we have a, a, a group of volunteers, is the best way to call them, called the payer organization. And when people hear about the payer organization, they immediately leap to some, uh, bureaucracy, basically, a bureaucracy that has a relatively uh, impermeable boundary where you, you're either on the inside of that organization or you're on the outside. And if you're on the inside, you get to make the decisions, and if you're on the outside, you don't. But that's not how the payer organization is organized. The payer organization is is surrounded by a semi-permeable membrane, if you will, that allows anyone who wants to participate as part of the payer organization to participate. Um, And by virtue of your participation, because you're benefiting people on the planet, you're rewarding that benefit reward for for those acts. the, the payer organization is made up of, at a global scale, tens of millions of people. So they're all, rep- they're all volunteers. They're all representative of the communities where they come from, the demographics where they come from, and they contribute to the payer organization based on their, as, as Jock likes to say, their technical competency. So <clears throat> whether they're scientists, engineers, mathematicians, statisticians, 
psychologists, industrial psychologists, um, artists, um, architects. It doesn't really matter what the what the discipline is because every discipline is going to be necessary to to um, to assess the benefit that is accrued by the mass acts of billions of people on the planet. Um, this payer organization does not make any decisions as to what people can do or cannot do. What it does do, kind of like the resource-based econo- economy's technical teams, is it goes out and it measures resources um, and actions of producers and brings that data back into the payer organization and the, that data is turned into information which is used to feed the department of the payroll organization that operates our uh, copiosis algorithm. That information is used to assign variables to the algorithm that is used to make NBR reward determinations based, based on um, what the acts are. Sorry, I, I just got interrupted. That's okay. Um, okay. I guess I'll take a moment to tell the listeners, uh, you know, um, the chat room is actually open, so if you guys have any questions for our guest about uh, copiosis, uh, please let me know. And um, are you back? <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Someone wanted to use the room. So, um, so as I was saying, the, this payer organization doesn't make any decisions on behalf of society. It makes, it makes the decisions on what goes into the algorithm based on the information that they've gathered from society as a whole with regard to resources, how those resources are being used, what the level of those resources are, and what producers are doing to benefit people. And that, all of that information is fed into the algorithm. And then the algorithm, based on that calculation, per, tra- per act, decides how much a producer is rewarded based on the benefit, the magnitude of the benefit of the act at that that producer is taking. So that sounds like just um, um, like an assessment, like or like a survey of a like of the, a large percentage of people, um, almost democratic. I mean, essentially, you're just kind of gathering data on the opinions of the masses as far as to what they think is most important and therefore worth more net benefit. That's one. That's one of the many um, fields of data. Yeah, they're also um, the, the the example I like to use is fisheries. So. The payer organization operating with, you know, field biologists and then biologists who are inside of offices uh, analyzing data, these people would monitor the, let's take salmon, for example. They would monitor the level of the salmon population. They would, and I know they're able to do this because I used to work in an organization that did exactly this. They would forecast what the returns would be for a given season, and then based on that information and the current and past um, behavior of fish salmon harvesters, they would predict the healthy the, the health level of that stock, and then work with the fisheries um, the fisheries people, the people who are actually doing the fishing, to determine how much salmon are going to be necessary to feed the demand of society. And then they would work with the fisheries people, the, the actual fishermen, to make sure that the stock is um, maintained at a healthy level. So. From the, from the standpoint of net benefit reward, a fisherman could fish as much fish as he wants to to feed the demand for salmon up to the point where the health of the stock is maintained. Once that, that um, 
that boundary is reached, then the net benefit reward the fisherman receives for taking fish begins to go down because the harm that he's producing on that stock is greater than the benefit he's producing feeding people salmon. So the the pair organization doesn't tell the fisherman, hey, you got to stop fishing fish. It's the, if you will, it's the NBR signal that make that that puts that um, that pressure on the fisherman's behavior, evidenced by his decreasing NBR reward. So at that point, the fisherman has a choice. He can continue fishing salmon and receive less and less NBR, and possibly the peer pressure that he would receive from other fishermen who have decided to stop fishing salmon. Um, or he could change his, his behavior to something that does that restores the salmon population. Maybe he shifts his activities from um, fishing to conservation. Maybe he does something that helps restore the habitat of fish of the, of, that the salmon need to survive. Maybe he shifts his activities to um, uh, reducing populations of species that take salmon out in the oceans and in estuaries. Maybe he works with fisheries managers up upriver to uh, produce more salmon in the hatcheries. Or maybe he produces, helps uh, natural biologists create more riparian zones. All of the acts that I just mentioned, because they'd be working to increase stock populations, would net him more net benefit than he would receive if he continued to fish beyond the level at which the population goes critical. And, and that information that would tell him uh, what I just said, would come from the payer organization. So the payer organization isn't regulating the fisherman's behavior. It's simply feeding information to the algorithm, which the algorithm outputs a reward amount, and that is delivered to the fisherman based on his acts. The reward amount varies depending on the amount of resources available and the act that the fisherman's taking. So the fisherman receives, I like to call it a price signal, he receives a price signal. The price signal is in the form of an increased or decreased NBR, and then the fisherman is free to make whatever decisions he or she wants to make regarding his or her actions. So if, if, you, if you consider what I just described, the payer organization is not making any sort of decree or trying to regulate or, or force any sort of behavior on the part of the fisherman, and that, that is the case across any producer activity. The payer organization makes no determination over what anyone is doing. It simply gathers data, feeds it into the algorithm, and the algorithm, the algorithm produces rewards per action, and the, and the action taker gets to decide what he does next based on the amount of net benefit his action is producing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would assume that um, basically then the, the net benefit, like, uh, Obviously, like you know, the the equivalent, I guess, of the price or you know, like a typical fee or whatever word you would use, would adjust accordingly depending on demand. And demand would come from the feedback from the masses. Is that is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah. One of the, one of the one of the variables in the algorithm is how much are people demanding salmon, for example. If not a lot of people, if if all the other variables are equal and not a lot of people are demanding salmon, and there's a lot of people out there fishing for salmon, those people aren't going to get very much net benefit reward because human beings aren't wanting to eat salmon. Right. So they would want to fish other stocks that are in more demand or do something totally different that's in more demand. So, yeah, demand is, is definitely one of the factors. But it's not the most, it's not the most, how do I say it? 
it's not the most influential variable in the algorithm. The most influential variable in the algorithm is the um, impact of an action on the planet as measured by the abundance of resources available for the act that are consumed by the act and whether those, that abundance is decreasing, staying the same, uh, or being replenished. That's the biggest variable in the algorithm. So basically back to, okay, well, you know, it's good, it's all well and good that millions of people want salmon, but we're, you know, the, the actions involved with getting salmon are having some other environmental impact, so then the algorithm will say, okay, we got to chill out on the salmon. Is that essentially what you're saying? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying, yeah. Okay. And, and, and then, so, so take, um, this might be a, a culturally sensitive example, but take shark fin soup, for example. We know that Sharks are being decimated as a result of um, Asian, some Asian cultures' demand for shark fin soup. Mm-hmm. And we know that sharks are a top-tier predator in the ocean, and to lose sharks, uh, biologically speaking, could have devastating, potential devastating impacts on the viability of our ocean, ocean species. So it, in my best estimation, I can't say this with 100% accuracy, but in my best estimation those people that are out there fishing for sharks, especially the way they do it, would not receive any MBR for the acts that they're taking. Now, when you think about any sort of enterprise today, hardly any of them are able to be accomplished as a solo act. You need all kinds of other human beings and other human beings' property in order to undertake an act like going and harvesting sharks out of the ocean. And so, None of those people who are contributing their resources or their time to the act of harvesting shark for shark fin soup are going to receive NBR for their acts. So it's highly unlikely that all of those people are going to continue to harvest shark fins if they're not receiving the NBR that they want in order to consume the luxuries that they have grown accustomed to having. So by by virtue of the, again, it's not an accurate term, but I like it in, because it, it makes sense in economics, by virtue of the price signal that shark fin soup harvester or shark fin harvesters are receiving in the in the drop of their net benefit rewards from whatever it was to zero, one can I think safely assume that no one's going to want to harvest shark fins anymore. Okay, I see what you're saying. Well, I mean that's one of the major capitalist flaws that you try to get across to anarcho-capitalists in particular that. Um, just that you know we cannot make everything about supply and demand because right. supply and demand um, does not uh, in any way necessarily reflect what's necessarily good um, overall. Right. Uh, you know, like if if we were all floating on an orange in the in the ocean and it was our only uh, boat, then eating the orange is not in our best interest. Exactly. Um, it, so that's basically, I, I see where you're going with it, um, and we keep referring to the algorithm. I assume that somebody who's better at mathematics would probably be able to have a better conversation with you about how the algorithm works, but I, I more or less get what you're saying. Um, I guess uh, my question then is, how would you see such a system being implemented in our current paradigm? Well, it's already being implemented, and and this is the, I think the, the reason why I believe, some people I want to say many, about 600 people, um, overtly and probably many more, are who who ascribe to, 
um, the resource-based economy who follow the Zeitgeist Movement and the Venus Project are beginning to look at what we're doing at Copiosis because our transition plan, in my opinion, is probably the best one that's out there. So how we're doing it is a multi-phase approach. In the first phase, um, I'm, I'm describing how you make Copiosis a reality. In the first phase, we uh, are prosecuting an awareness campaign. In the awareness campaign, not only are we talking about copiosis in programs like this, but we're also rolling out demonstration projects around the world. The first two real-world demonstration projects with the, the, the copiosis software and the algorithm are working today to reward net benefit to individual producers who are taking acts in their, in their communities, are operating in Portland, uh, a, a community in, in North Portland called Kenton, and another uh, uh, city called Chico in California. In these two demonstration projects, we have a total of about uh, 60 families right now who are interacting with each other as producers and consumers, trading uh, both products and services, some classified into the necessities class, some classified as luxuries. And as a result of those transactions, the producers are receiving MBR and the consumers are benefiting from the transactions. They're being rewarded as a result of calculations made by the algorithm I'm acting as the payer organization, uh, uh, making, collecting the data that goes into the algorithm and assigning the, the variables. The, this payer organization that currently is just myself is open to anyone who wants to participate. So just like in the full-blown global payer organization, this payer organization is open to anyone um, who wants to participate in helping to assign the variables. And we're producing really good results. But the most, the most important result, Neil, that's happening in these demonstration projects is something that I have not seen anyone who's talking about the resource-based economy um, uh, address, and that is the psycho-emotional shifts that are necessary in every individual human being if we want to see the resource-based economy become a reality. And what I'm talking about is we are all conditioned by debt-based economies to behave in ways, like you said, in, in, in capitalism, if we were all floating on an orange and someone could profit from eating that, or eating that orange, the likelihood is they're going to eat that orange. We're just conditioned by, by our system to behave in ways that are, that are not in our best interest. And so in, we have to confront in a non-confrontational way that conditioning we can't just assume that just because we have a wonderfully designed city plan or a wonderful technology that's going to replace human labor that we're going to be able to easily transition to this new future. We have to address um, the human behavior conditioning that we all are a part of. And what happens in our demonstration projects, and this is really fascinating and unique, is that when people begin conducting these transactions, this is not hypothetical, these are actual results, people are confronting inside of themselves this condition that I'm talking about. We had a participant in Chico who came to the demonstration project in Portland, and um, her and her daughter came up here, and a family, she, she was on her way from Chico to Seattle for Thanksgiving, and instead of staying in, she didn't want to drive the whole way in one go, so she came up to Portland, and she, she was going to stay in a hotel, but one of the participants said, you can stay in, in, our, in our place. So she, had, she got housing at no cost to her. And the family also provided her and her daughter with vegan meals. So she got food and lodging as a result of the demonstration project. 
as part of that experience, she expressed the following feeling. She said, Perry, I feel like I owe this person for what I receive from them. I, I'm feeling this pain, real emotional pain, that I should actually return the favor. And I, I had to explain to her that, no, the, this future that we're moving into is not about debt transaction. When you receive a benefit from another human being in this new future, you are not obligated to return that favor because the payer organization via the net benefit algorithm rewards that person for the act he or she did to benefit you. You do not have to feel obligated to respond in kind. And, and through this conversation, we realized that this is part of the conditioning that we have today where we cannot freely accept a gift, any sort of act really, from another person without the automatic reaction that we owe that person in return. Does that make sense? No, no, that definitely makes sense. Um, that We often talk about the, uh, the value shift uh, in consciousness that will have to take place. Um, you know, that, for example, uh, you couldn't just take 30 random people off the street and put them in a resource-based economy city and expect them to be able to function. Exactly. You know, that it takes more than that. It takes a, a re-evaluation and a re-understanding of essentially what, you know, what motivates you. You know, right. when I became involved with the Venus Project stuff, but more or less what ends up happening is is you're your values do start to change, especially as you start to strip away the the noise um, that I would, you know, like as Peter Joseph points out, the the power that advertising has on making mm. us desire certain items. Yes. Um, false uh, entities such as uh, fashion uh, is an excellent example. Um, novelty and yes. how much money people are willing to spend on those things without really realizing that their their real value is 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 actually not all that much and yes. the most extreme example of it would be the um actually when a Zeitgeist moving forward was coming out I had sent PJ a meeting Peter Joseph an email about this the city uh the city street where people go into this expensive store and buy $1000 handbags and they literally step over homeless people <laughs> on their way into getting this. And then, um, much to my surprise and um, delightment, in the beginning of Zeitgeist moving forward, there's pretty much that exact same scenario playing wow. uh, where the main character is looking at these rich people, you know, sitting there, you know, with their expensive gaudy stuff and, you know, like a, a homeless child like, laying on the street. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but yeah, $1,000 handbags, $500 sneakers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That stuff... Um, is is all probably an, an amazing extreme example. Uh, when I had a um, Noel on Noel Hunter, the guy who played the main character in all the Zeitgeist films, um, you know, he pointed out that there was an app for phones that literally was called I'm Rich. It costed a thousand dollars, and all it did was it put on your phone I'm Rich. Wow. Um, you know, so just imagine the resources that this person is wasting. Um, just on something that, you know, that essentially was literally just like a badge of of wealth, like literally a badge of wealth that you have on your phone. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting because when I, so it, it, it's a, there's a thin gray line, I think, Neil, between pointing out examples like that, which I agree 100% with you on, and thinking about what would it be like in the future that we both agree is possible. Because in the future that we both agree is possible, 
there, were, there will certainly be a level of prosperity for everyone that far exceeds what we have today. So rich in this new future, it really can't even be compared to what rich is today. But there's a psychology that goes with, and I think this is what you're pointing out, there's a psychology that goes with being rich today that is based, that is whereby the definition of rich is based on other people being poor. Right. You know what I'm saying? No, that's exactly it. And I I realize, especially when I... I remember having a conversation um, with an anarcho-capitalist a long time ago, back when I was slowly making the transition out of libertarian, like right-leaning libertarian anyway, thinking. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, well, I want to own a Learjet. You know, I'm like, okay, why? Yeah, why? Well, why is that important to you? You know, and... I started to realize that um, what they really are enamored with and fascinated with is the game monopoly in real life. They they want to be in a situation where they can be not equal, yes. you know, where they can be superior to someone else. That's what they crave. And what the socialists point out all the time is that no matter how much we point out to these people that statistically that that's really unlikely. <laughs> you know, you're not going to go from rags to riches. It's extremely unlikely. They they still are so caught up and enamored with the romanticized notion of I'm going to have, you know, a stretch limo and I'm going to have, you know, servants catering to my every whim and I'm going to have an enormous mansion, you know, that I'm probably going to use about 5% of the space of, you know, um, that they're basically so like you said, conditioned. Um, and, I, and that's, I think, largely what these people are defending. And when you really peel away the layers, you get to some pretty disturbing stuff, particularly if you start reading Ayn Rand, who's like their, you know, poster girl, and the way she thinks, you know, it becomes harder and harder to ever think that any kind of society like they would that they would crave would ever have anything resembling charity to make up for the lack of welfare, you know, things like that. It's but their whole mentality is really caught up in the idea that it's that they don't want prosperity for all. They want prosperity for themselves, and and the expense of others. You know, so that they can in some way feel more secure, more uh, important, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I totally agree with what you're describing, and at the same time, I don't and I don't I don't hear you say, doing this, but I don't disparage those people. This is the this is where I have to get kind of spiritual and not kind of, I have to get spiritual and say it's part of the human drama to go through the experience for some people to go through the experience that these people are going through, because at the end of that experience, what they discover is what you already know, which is there's no value fulfillment in the accomplishment of those things. And, and some people have to go through that experience to come to that realization. And so in, in the truest sense, I believe of life, because it's so subjective, there are some people that 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 have enormous epiphanies owning a Learjet and discovering it's not the source of happiness, or having a beautiful babe and discovering that that's not the source of happiness, or being richer than someone else and realizing that there's more struggle being rich than there is being a middle-income earner. I mean, this these are part of the human drama. And so I don't begrudge the people who want Learjets. It's just a different... It's a different path to the same outcome, which is realizing we're all 
one. We're all on the same journey. It's a journey towards happiness and prosperity. And I just believe we can have a system that better facilitates that journey than the one that we currently have. Well, they, yeah, I mean, I, I usually bring this up um, on, my, on my other broadcasts about this topic because I had a unique childhood experience in that my father came from a wealthy family and my mother came from a poor family and I was able to kind of experience what both of those cultures live like. Uh, yeah. And the reality is is that, I mean, people think about this, I don't, I don't necessarily that they, they really put it in perspective, if being wealthy was this amazing ticket to perfect happiness, why are you always getting all these headlines about, you know, Mel Gibson's an alcoholic and... <laughs> You know, uh, Robert Downey Jr. went through a horrible phase in his younger years mm-hmm. that he's thankfully overcome where he was mm-hmm. in drugs. And, mm-hmm. you know, if it was supposedly so great, then why are all these people on, you know, whatever chemical they can find in order to try to, you know, get over it? And, you know, on a more close level, uh, one of my activities that I participate in, uh, the hobby, just happens to have people from lots of different walks of life. So uh, every weekend when I go to the you know, the interactions that I do with these people for this hobby, I'll run into people who are on welfare and I'll run into people who are extremely wealthy, all under the same roof. And one of my friends is extremely wealthy, has like a, you know, a 10-bedroom house and he has a new car every year. And every time I go over to the guy's house, he's always in some way upset about money. Something money-wise is going on that that's just stressing him out. And oh my God. And and it, when I go over to the friend of mine who's also on welfare, it's the same thing. Mm. You know, like they're they're also... <laughs> You know, really upset, you know, so worried about money. There is no end to it, really. No. And I think that um, the only people that really become satisfied with it are the ones who are just so sociopathic, psychopathic about it that they don't even think of people outside of the wealthy as human. Um, and to me, to me, success is happiness and whatever that is. You know, and I've met people who are janitors that are far more content than my friend with his 12-bedroom house and his new car every year. You know, and to, that's, I think, where we go wrong. I mean, when you, I mean, there's a reason for it. It's not accidental. Um, it was, you know, you brought up social engineering. It was, you know, basically the, the wealthy elite came to Edward Bernays and said, you know, how do we essentially engineer society to be a group of consumerists in and they enacted his plans, and that's why we are where we are. And I think that, you know, one of the it, some people suggest that it's human nature, but I don't think that it is because after I was aware of the the veil that had been pulled over my eyes and I pulled it off, I found myself profoundly changing the way I looked at things. Yes, yes, and it's it's interesting because the I think there the, another way that one can be comfortable with whatever your relationship to money is is realizing that your happiness doesn't depend on that. Um, so like the, the janitor that you mentioned, for example, might not, while he makes what or she makes what he or she makes, it's not a big deal to that person. And the, their their focus is on more important things like relationships and love. And I know that sounds schmarmy, but that's, in my opinion, the, the reason why we're all here is for connectedness and re- recognizing oneself in another. Um, with regard to... Um, the the Bernays comment that you made, you know, I I don't spend a whole lot of time focusing on that, but I can I can it, it doesn't take you know uh, 
dwell, dwelling into to long past events to to understand that the system is designed in a particular way to produce a particular outcome. And the really cool thing about conversations like this and organizations like the Venus Project is that people are waking up from that um, that delusion. And I can't help but think that more and more people, I mean, look at Bernie, what Bernie Sanders is accomplishing here in the U.S. This, I, there are more and more people coming to this realization, Neil. And because of that, there's a momentum that's being developed. And whether Bernie Sanders becomes president or not, if he does, whether he's able to accomplish his agenda or not, <clears throat> he has already contributed greatly to the oncoming inevitability of the resource-based economy. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm highly encouraged by the events, and I include in the term events the psychopaths, the corporate plunderers, the banksters, all of the people who um, many folks in our camp and our tribe vilify. I include those people in the, in the, the asking of the solution that's on the way. <clears throat> Everybody plays their part. Well, yeah, and I think that uh, it's definitely necessary to when it, when you're going forth in any kind of social engineering project, so to speak, mm-hmm. that you have to take into account the different personalities and how they react to various things. And I've always kind of told people that um, I think that a transition will come about with more of us getting off the grid and getting out of the system as much as possible, um, as essentially making ourselves as independent of money as possible. And then when the power of money starts to go down because people need less and less of it, you know, they'll have to come to the table. But that still requires, you know, a, a great deal of resources. You know, I, I can't just snap my fingers and say I'm gonna go, you know, get myself off the grid, buy an off the grid home with solar panels and geothermal heating and cooling and all that. You know, that requires a bit of capital to get it started. Um it's encouraging that you are running these kind of um uh experiments, so to speak. Uh, when I su- when people ask me if there are any examples of an RBE, I usually bring up off-the-grid living as an example because it's mm-hmm. the closest thing I can think of, um, wherein somebody basically creates an environment for themselves where all of their needs are met in the most renewable way possible and that they are as independent as far as, you know, from being dependent on anyone else uh, also as possible. And I say that from the perspective that people tend to not really consider the fact that basically the world we live in right now uh, revolves around jobs. Hopefully you find one. And a job essentially consists of some activity that you participate in that is more valuable to your employer than his money. Right. And if you can't find a way right. to be more valuable to somebody than their money, then you don't have any money. Right. Um, and with the advent of automation, that it was just going further and further all the time. I mean, every now and then, I'll, that's one of the things actually that compelled me to get back on the radio was just kind of getting exposed to it again. I had more or less lost myself in my jobs and my and my kids' activities and, you know, taken a break from this mentality again. I got a rude awakening in the form of, you know, an employer who was very clear to me that that guy will automate everything as fast as he can. He doesn't like us. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't, you know... We're just little cogs in his machine. If he fires one of us, he doesn't bat an eyelash. you know. And that's the mentality of the people on top. And I think if we don't create some kind of alternative for ourselves, they, it's not in their best interest to find one for us. They they don't care. You know, that's why um, 
when the more extreme conspiracy theorists will talk about, you know, depopulation agendas, and you know, and on the opposite side of it, when you when you discuss communism or socialism, people talk about, you know, death camps and death panels, and I generally have to point out that the system that we have right now doesn't even require death panels. If you don't figure out a way to become more useful, to, once again, to a millionaire than their money, you're going to die. You're going to starve. They're not even going to have to shoot you. And I think what's most dangerous about the capitalist side of this is that they brainwashed us into thinking that that's the right and just and correct way that things should be. Yeah, I, 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 your, your, all of your comments were really good because they, they take me back to an answer to a question you asked that I didn't fully answer, which is how do we make all this happen? Sure. I, I, I don't believe, I, I think you would agree, that it's possible for everyone to disconnect themselves from the system and thereby starve the system. Um, I, I also don't believe that it's possible that we can make the transition and this may this may be um, heresy in our tribe, but I don't think it's possible to make the transition without the help of the people like your former employer. We have to get them on our side. And so the way that, in my opinion, the, the plan that we're using in copiosis is, is this. Um, let me say one other thing first. Sure. I, I agree that it appears that the people at the top don't care about the rest of us, but they do care about their children and they care about their family, and that's enough. So the plan that, that, we're, that we're operating here at Copiosis is this. We create as many demonstration projects as we can in the United States and elsewhere. Our, our milestone is 1,000 demonstration projects in the U.S., which by, just by doing that, we'll have some number similar to that around the world, and I can say that with a certainty because that's what's happening right now. The two that we have in the United States is already spawned conversations of four more in the United States and another six or so in different countries. So as our demonstrations, uh, the number of demonstrations expand around the U.S. and around the world, uh, we receive more and more media attention, which I also know is a fact because that's what's happening with our current demonstration projects. As we get more demonstration, uh, more media attention, we get more people interested in what we're doing. I know that's a fact too because the media attention we've gotten has generated more interest and those people want to participate in our demonstration projects. So it's this virtuous circle of increasing numbers of demonstration projects, which include increasing numbers of participants. At some point, we achieve the first milestone of the first phase of awareness, which is uh, one or two or more high net worth individuals supporting us with funding. Now, there have been examples of high net worth individuals funding uh, social programs in the past. So this is not an unlikely scenario. Once that happens, then we move into what I call the edutainment phase. In the edutainment phase, in the edutainment phase, we have strategies, the following strategies. One, we're going to create an event that people will pay a lot of money for to attend because that event is an entertaining event. And the event is going to be designed similar to like a Cirque du Soleil show or a Blue Man group show. I don't know if you are familiar with those two. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar okay. with Blue Man anyway. Okay, great. So you know that a Blue Man group is a highly entertaining event that tends to provide some education in either math or the sciences. So in, this, in the same way, we're going to produce a highly entertaining event that also provides education about the copiosis uh, economy. In addition to that event, we're also developing a 
a massively multiplayer, massively multiple player online role playing game in which people can um, enroll into the online copiosis economy and experience it for themselves through this game. At, at this point, we're trying to create the story that all games need to make them interesting. So the, the story will take place in the backdrop of a copiosis environment. In addition to, to that experience, we're also um, going to create online video content, probably a television series or an online TV type series, uh, where there's a story taking place in the context of a copious society with characters that people can relate to. So that's the edutainment phase where we have these products rolling out that people will experience as entertainment, but at the same time receive education about copiosis. When we have critical mass in that phase, which is evidenced by millions of people finding out about copiosis and literally tens of millions of dollars flowing into the organization because people want to see it actually happen, then we move into the political phase. And in the political phase, what we do is we start placing people who wish to run for politics, political positions at the state and local level on a copiosis platform. And in this situation, the candidate is not the individual. The candidate is the um, movement, copiosis. The individual human being who's filling the political position is simply a representative of the movement. So once they're positioned in local and state government, then we groom those people through those experiences to move up into federal positions. Once we get and this has happened before, once we get um, influence, whether it's a majority or some other level of influence at the federal level, in any country, it doesn't have to be the United States, then we propose legislation to transition that nation from the economy that it has into a copiosis economy. And if, when we get to that level, Neil, then we have made such significant progress in, the, in social consciousness and consciousness of leadership that it becomes almost an inevitability because even the wealthy class begins to understand that the RBE will benefit them just as much as everybody else. Well, that's an excellent pitch, especially, um, I'd say, getting close to the end of our broadcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely see where you're going with this, and I and I hope to hear more from you as it goes forward. And you'll have to get in touch with me about like how I might be able to participate in one of these tests at some point if you ever do one in Michigan. Sure. Um, and uh, I guess before we go, uh, can you share with my listeners where they can find out more about this? Absolutely. They can. Uh, there's several places they can go to www.copiosis.com, that's C-O-P-I-O-S-I-S.com. Um, that's the, the hub of our activities. And then there's a Facebook group, the Copiosis Social Group, that they can go to and become a member where we have a lot of conversation about the, the str transition strategy I just mentioned and other elements, including the demonstration projects. Um, we have a YouTube channel, which is obviously Copiosis. You can just Google YouTube and Copiosis, and you'll find it there. And then those people who are interested in becoming, uh, starting a demonstration project, we're going to be launching a demonstration project Facebook group shortly. And then for those people who are super excited and want to see this thing happen and are willing to contribute at least $2 a month to, our, um, to what we're doing, they can go to patreon.com forward slash Copiosis and become a patron. All right. Well, excellent. Um, thank you very much for coming on today. And uh, hopefully, if uh, you get any news as far as like how this project is going, any new developments, you know, let me know. I'm always looking for show ideas. 
Um, and I hope everybody who has been listening um, has enjoyed this so far. And uh, once again, uh, thank you for listening to V Radio, and thanks to those of you who have donated so far. My next show um, that is planned will actually be to bring on the Venus Project to discuss their new film. I had talked to Roxanne about this just the other day. Um, they were Initially, I was hoping to get them on before the film's released to talk about it, but it, they've been working really hard to get it down and ready to go, so... Instead, we're going to go after the release. So um, if you guys will have anybody, any questions for Jacques and Roxanne, please kind of have them uh, prepared ahead of time. And uh, as far as uh, upcoming shows, I am still looking for ideas. Uh, as I told all of you guys when I came back, uh, my experiences in the workforce definitely make it a lot harder to be the, the VTV that you've all come to uh, support in the past. So... Um, inspiration often leaves me. So if you have any ideas for anything that you want done, like Joe, for example, wanted this show, uh, don't hesitate to get in contact with me. Just remember that v-radio.org is currently down. Um, I'm using my blogger uh, for V-Radio as essentially my base, Um, and as well as the Fans of V-Radio Facebook group, uh, which is a good show. That would be good for the show and updates the show and comments about the show. So thanks again, everybody, and thanks again, Perry, for coming on. I'll talk to you for a couple minutes off the air if you have time. Yeah, I do. You've been a great host. Thank you so much. No problem. And um, once again, guys, uh, thanks for coming on today. And once again, I think I'm going to pull up my favorite clip of George Carlin on our way out. Now to balance the scale, I'd like to talk about some things that bring us together, things that point out our similarities instead of our differences. Because that's all you ever hear about in this country is our differences. That's all the media and the politicians are ever talking about, the things that separate us, things that make us different from one another. That's the way the ruling class operates in any society. They try to divide the rest of the people. They keep the lower and the middle classes fighting with each other so that they, the rich, can run off with all the fucking money. Fairly simple thing happens to work. You know anything different, that's what they're going to talk about. Race, religion, ethnic and national background, jobs, income, education, social status, sexuality, anything you can do, keep us fighting with each other so that they can keep going to the bank. You know how I describe the economic and social classes in this country? The upper class keeps all of the money, pays none of the taxes. The middle class pays all of the taxes, does all of the work. The poor are there just to scare the shit out of the middle class. Keep them showing up at those jobs.